Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is Dr. Dave Young, the Chief Operating Officer of CASE, uh, C-A-E-S, otherwise known as Cobham Advanced Electronic Systems. Uh, he was, until very recently, the company's Chief Technology Officer. And as anybody knows, CASE is one of the nation's leading electronic warfare and systems firms uh, and is also a key microelectronics house. Dave, Thanks so very much for joining us. It's a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks, Vago. Thanks for having me. Uh, a, a real uh, pleasure. Uh, and a quick word, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of products is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo, DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Dave, um, electronic warfare is a critical uh, capability. We had a great conversation at the Association of Old Crows show uh, late uh, last year. Uh, and really is at the center of the war in Ukraine. Uh, and we're seeing a demonstration of the role of EW uh, in an extremely high-intensity kinetic environment commingled with cyber capabilities, signals intelligence, right, which are all sort of the, the sweet spot that you guys find yourselves in. in. But what are some of the lessons you're learning from this campaign that shapes your thinking uh, and investment for the future? Well, Vago, thanks. It's, it's a great question. You know, I'll start with, I think when you went through all your sponsors of the program, I think they were all our customers. So a lot of your listeners probably haven't heard a lot about CASE, but we basically touch almost every electronic warfare or radar system that the U.S. deploys today. So we've been watching, obviously, the conflict in Ukraine very closely, because as in most conflicts, you use every tool that's at your disposal. And one of those tools that the Russians are using almost every day and almost every element of the conflict is electronic warfare. So as we're watching both their response to Ukrainian actions as well as Ukrainian response to Russian actions, we're learning a ton. We're not only learning about, I'll say, the textbook ways that electronic warfare is generally thought of, but we're also learning about kind of the garage mentality over what kinds of electronic warfare capabilities could be utilized kind of off the shelf or using right. commercial technologies or using kind of an, literally in a garage to be able to try to display or disrupt high-end capabilities and high-end kinetic capabilities. And there's a lot of success happening on both sides. When you look at the Russian capabilities, uh, right, Dave? There is a tendency of thinking about them as brute force over finesse. Um, how how do you rank what they're doing, how they're doing, and also, as you said, how commercially available technology is actually allowing the Ukrainians to field some pretty sophisticated capability, even though we are helping them with it, um, right? T talk to us about what this global economy looks like, how the Russians stack up, the Chinese stack up, we stack up, um, on on sort of the the uh, you know in terms of the big game, and then you know I'll follow up with with how this you know emerging technologies are are shaping the field uh, for adversaries more broadly, whether it's the North Koreans or Iranians or anybody else. Yeah, it's a great question, Vago, and I'll use the sports analogy. So I apologize to your uh, listeners, but I am a recovering Buffalo Bills fan, and so as a Buffalo Bills fan, coming off of obviously a tough week for us. Um, you look at like NFL football as the top game, the pinnacle of where it is. What we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia right now is more like college football. 
It's very good. It's very exquisite. You watch it, you're amazed at the capabilities, but it's not the highest end capabilities that we and our adversaries are all preparing for. The Russians are holding back some of that capability. The Chinese obviously have an exquisite capability that they've been practicing every day. The U.S., we hear a lot in the news that we're falling behind or now investment needs to come. And the U.S. has generationally been focused on kinetic warfare and not necessarily non-kinetic warfare. I think the war in Ukraine watching, you know, to continue my analogy, watching college football, we've learned a few things. We've learned some innovative kind of um, formations, some innovative actions, some innovative ways to do motion. And so it's influencing how we play the pro game, but I wouldn't say it's a direct corollary to what the pros look like. That's in no way to diminish the Russians' electronic warfare capability, but we have not seen, in my personal opinion, I do not believe we've seen the full extent of their capability on the battlefield in Ukraine today. Vice versa, what we're seeing with the Ukraine is just like watching that kind of upstart team in college football have some successes. They're having success on the battlefield doing things completely differently than the playbook says that you need to do them. And as a result, we're trying to take those lessons learned and institute them into that pro game that the U.S. is preparing for for a great powers conflict. As a result, there is some influence, but I would say to the dismay of industry out there, those lessons tend to turn slowly in the U.S. bureaucratic budget environment. The department's thinking about, as you know, Vaga, the 25 is basically baked. They're thinking about 26. Yet in the reality of conflict, we need to turn these capabilities in days and weeks, not in decades. We have a lot to do and a lot to learn from what's happening out there, but it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation to the pro game that could be played. Um, let me uh, take you to, um, you know, how how you would rank us, right? I mean, once upon a time, the United States was sort of the preeminent electronic warfare power. We and our allies in Cobham has uh, British DNA in it, and the United Kingdom has historically been uh, good at this capability. The French have some great capabilities, uh, as do the, the Germans. Um, but the United States sort of stood above, right? The Russians were known as brute force, uh, and and the Chinese were are much better at scaling capability and fielding it, right? Um, but the Chinese capability is getting, you know, and you use this term exquisite a couple of times that the the Russians who've always believed in this craft have upped their game, and that the Chinese have dramatically upped their game. And the danger is that they're also scaled, right? What's the way, right. and I understand a lot of this is highly classified and I don't want you to get into that, but how how should the audience think about it? Because we as Americans have a tendency of thinking ourselves as we're the best, we're the best, we're the best, and then are kind of surprised when somebody else might actually be better than we are. <laughs> and, and we go, well, what did, how, what did that happen? And then guys like you go, well, I've been telling you this for, for some time, right? How should the audience think about what the scale of capabilities out there is uh, as, as we go about developing our own or improving our capabilities? The U.S. has generationally been focused on kinetic warfare. And so that kinetic warfare has ebbed and flowed between great power conflicts to more of the kind of terrorist Afghanistan, uh, Iraq type conflict and back and forth. Electronic warfare has always generally taken a back seat to the kinetic capabilities and large force deployments that we've had in the past. That said, I don't want anyone to walk away to think that the electronic warfare capability of the U.S. is second tier to anyone in the world. 
what we're developing are not only, I'll say, exquisite capabilities. Our exquisite capabilities are unmatched in the world. When you take a look at the proliferation of those capabilities, that's where I think the U.S. has some learning to do from the conflicts that are happening and from our adversaries, as you mentioned, the Russians and Chinese. Right. Our adversaries are taking those exquisite capabilities and proliferating them across their force. Where in the U.S., we tend to have the best. But to have the best, we generally develop it in very small enclaves. I think you mentioned that there's highly classified work. A lot of the work that's done in the electronic warfare regime is highly classified, but it's exquisite. And so we as a nation have to figure out how to deploy that exquisite capability in very short notice and have it very widespread to make it relevant in any potential conflict. Let me um, follow up uh, on that a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've been at this uh, some years as, as a reporter. Um, and one of the things, you know, I mean, I don't want to make it compare it to nuclear weapons, but mm -hmm. our electric more is known about our nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons capabilities than our electronic warfare capabilities. And and people go entire careers without really understanding in full what those magic boxes do. Um, do we need to fundamentally, and as you said, right, uh, Dave, they're very closely held, right? I mean, the minute that you use any capability, you reveal it uh, to the community. Uh, and this is a very expert community, no matter where they are. So it takes very little for somebody to go, hey, wait a minute, they can do this, that, or the other thing. From your standpoint, how is it we need to maybe change our philosophy a little bit so that the first time senior leaders understand a capability is not during a crisis, but actually have a sense of how to be able to employ these in combat because the Chinese certainly are fielding their very best capability to the front line and are willing to have some of that re uh, revealed, uh, you know, understanding that this is part of the cycle of advantage. What, what is the philosophical difference, um, the philosophical change we might need at our end so that commanders don't learn about something the very first time when, you know, Colonel Young comes up to them and says, hey, by the way, this is what we could do. Yeah, Vago, I think what I would say is you're seeing it in the news today. And so I think the pivot has begun and it's moving quickly. So you'll see large companies in the US DOD have announced in exercises like RIMPAC that they're integrating electronic warfare into our capabilities. You'll see new programs in the press where they talk about using other transaction authorities for next generation capabilities like I think the Navy has just kicked off an AdView program, so Advanced Electronic Warfare Program. These programs coming out into the light, where in the path they would have been completely behind the curtain, allows the day-to-day warfighter to get used to what electronic warfare capabilities are and how they integrate into the fight. The exquisite will always be kept behind doors. I don't think there's an easy answer other than high-level war games and teaching the high level, I'll say planners over what the electronic warfare capabilities are, where the issue with electronic warfare, very similar to cyber is, as you mentioned, once you use it, it's known. And so the question is, when do we pull that lever to use our exquisite capabilities out into the field and then have to generate the next set of exquisite capabilities because our adversaries learn and react and in some case duplicate some of the things that we develop today. So it's always a very tough question. It's going to live in the gray. But I think the department has done a very good job of trying to integrate, I'll say, 
that college football electronic warfare into the day-to-day of their operations, always keeping the kind of exquisite pro game and the trick plays behind the curtain for use in the day of flight. Do do we, Dave, have the synthetic ranges where we can practice this capability away from prying eyes? I know that that's been a challenge. We want to set up these joint synthetic training environments uh, to be able to do this stuff at scale. Do we have the ranges where we can also do not just the electronic warfare elements of it, combine it with uh, simulated kinetic, but also then bring the cyber, the signals intelligence, and all of the other pieces that we need uh, to bring to this? Because it's all one big conjoined environment, isn't it? It is. And I think combined effects trading has been a buzzword for a while, but it's really getting put into action today. I think watching the integrated effects that's happening over in Europe today in the Ukraine and watching what's happening in the Pacific, it's really a requirement that current DOD leaders are really understanding. You can't, just like in the past, you couldn't take just air power and exercise it alone or just naval power and exercise it alone. It has to be an integrated fight. We're now doing that across kinetic to non-kinetic means to go integrate cyber, electronic warfare, as well as kinetic movements all into our preparation for what could be the future fight. I think that's been well recognized now by senior DOD leaders, and it's trickled down into industry to where now industry, as we develop capabilities, are looking over how those capabilities are integrated. I hear a lot about the, I'll say, the consolidation of defense industry and some of the negatives that have come out of that consolidation. One of the huge positives is now traditionally independent elements like non-kinetic warfare are now integrated to the kinetic side of the house. And companies now have knowledge of those cross-trained capabilities and can provide new insights to our customer over new technologies that can be implemented. And it's really an exciting time. So for a company like Case, where we have scale, but generally focus on the RF domain, we have RFs from radars doing the sensing side to munitions and missiles, trying to direct those weapons to their target, as well as the EW side. So I can tell you in practice today, Case is integrating both the offensive and defensive side of sensing to electronic warfare and looking at our investments, how we're able to provide next generation capability with knowledge across those domains. So what does uh, that scaling challenge look like, uh, Dave? I mean, uh, you know, I um, when it when it comes to, you know, sort of increasing production and fielding more capability, um, you know, you guys are having some interesting and very innovative commercial partnerships uh, that are actually helping you improve the ability to de- deliver defense capability. Um, Whereas on some of these microelectronic fields, whether it's on radars or electronic warfare, you need uh, very, very skilled technicians to manually tune. Uh, I know that that might seem bizarre to people in 2024 that that's the case, uh, but it is, uh, no pun intended. Uh, And so you guys are working on uh, robotized systems where some of these experienced staff are working with you. Talk to us about how that ecosystem is changing, how the commercial is helping you on the military side, but also how increased automation is going to be critical if we're going to be able to scale this capability the way our adversaries are now. Yeah, it's a great question, Vago. And it's something that I've been at case for three years now. And when I first walked the line over how we build electronic warfare systems, it was eye-opening to me. We have very skilled workforce that 
tunes our electronic warfare equipment to be the widest possible range because we can't pick where our adversary is going to operate along those ranges. So we have very high-end capability with very high-end technicians that develop that capability. That leads to a scaling problem. As you're looking at, hey, I want to double or triple the amount of electronic warfare systems I build or triple the amount of munitions we develop with high-end sensors on them, I can't triple the amount of trained technicians that have that capability by snapping my fingers. So we looked across the manufacturing development from automotive to electronics manufacturing, and we couldn't find the level of equipment we needed to replicate these skilled technicians doing high-end training or high-end tuning. So what we ended up doing was we worked with some manufacturing companies to develop a laser-based system that uses AI, an AI that we had to develop in-house given our knowledge of electronic warfare and across the DOD space. And we manipulated that DOD-specific AI knowledge to the automotive side. So it's kind of reversed the flow you traditionally see in the DOD where we're taking commercial technology and trying to implement it into DOD products. We have exquisite AI capabilities on the DOD side and we adapted that for our manufacturing processes. So we've now have tuning machines that when you look at them, they're unimpressive, they're kind of giant boxes, but inside those giant boxes, there's lasers and epoxy deposition machines and using AI to automatically tune these high-end electronic warfare equipment. And they're able to do it in a quarter of the time that the skilled technicians are able to do it under a microscope. And we can obviously scale those relatively easily. It's just a capital investment in the machinery. So we are preparing for a large ramp up, not only on the munition side, but also on the electronic warfare hardware side to be able to counter some of the scale discussion we had earlier today. It was a big investment, a big investment that we kind of leaned out on our own. And now we're excited to see the DOD industrial strategy that come out over the last week, that came out over the last week, really describe the workforce challenges and the need to automate to really drive it into our systems. And so it is an exciting time for us. We still have some kind of bureaucratic red tape in terms of getting those systems implemented across our product set. As you can imagine, we work for many of the primes that are out there developing their electronic warfare hardware. So as a result in the current system, each of those primes has to agree that our system is developing capability that's superior to the way we used to do it and faster. And as a result, we're going through that process today, but the results are really outstanding in terms of meeting the capacity demands that we're seeing in the electronic warfare space. Talk a little bit about the commercial automotive radar work you're doing, Dave, um, and how that's actually proving to be really game-changing on the defense side of things, actually, in a way that a lot of, you know, which which is a virtuous cycle we want to see more of, uh, and it, that we just, it's discussed in the industrial strategy. Uh, and and I'm not, I, I am not part of uh, the PR team with Jennifer and the rest of the team you guys have there, but I think it is pretty, pretty interesting uh, cross-connect there. Talk to us a little bit about that. It is. It's as you look across kind of what's happening in the commercial space and I'll just say autonomous driving is a great example of that. Through DARPA and other efforts over a decade ago to, I'll say the commercial industry picking up today, getting an autonomous car to really sense what's out there is a combination of capabilities that includes both visual all the way through the RF space. Now, if you're going to proliferate that capability, like some of these automotive manufacturers have across every car they built, 
one of the things that gets you is huge scale to get very affordable sensors out there in the RF space. So at Case, what we did is we looked across that space and said, if I woke up tomorrow and had a very affordable RF sensor, how could I utilize it in the DoD space? So we found many, many applications for that technology. To some, In some cases, we have to start from ground up and rebuild it. In other cases, we can use somewhat closely aligned commercial technology. But as your audience can imagine, taking a radar and getting it down to the size of a quarter allows you to put that in places and sense all weather capabilities in places that would previously unimaginable even a decade ago. So although I can't get into specifics around use of that technology, I can tell you that we found dozens and dozens of avenues of proliferating RF sensors like radars in places that you would have never expected in the past. And it's bringing a level of precision to our capabilities that we've never had before. Let, let me take you to the impact of AI, quantum, and proliferation of this capability, right? I mean, as you said, the Ukrainians are using it. Um, you know, once upon a time, uh, the U.S. space community would, you know, I, I don't want to say deride commercial space. C commercial space now has completely changed what the military space business is like, right? I can get imagery in real time anywhere in the world. News organizations use it, which then dynamically changes your ability to hide, your ability to move, and who, who gets to see you. Um, and at some point, Right, quantum computing will allow you to more easily maybe see submarines that are deep underwater, but they create a bulge on the surface of the water when they move, for example. And so if you can find that pattern recognition, it changes the game. How are you thinking as a technologist on what all of these fields look like in a handful of years? I mean, you know, once radar technology and RF technology gets that proliferated, you can bet your bottom dollar that everything from North Koreans to Iranians to narco-terrorists are going to benefit from it. It's something we think about every day, Vago, is I spend, uh, you know, I try to spend at least 10% of our internal resources really, I'll say, getting out in the environment and thinking about what's next. And that what next can be mission, can be technology, can be the integration of the two. But really what we're trying to think of is, what ways can we approach a problem differently given the technology state we're in today versus where we were yesterday or a year ago or five years ago? And that's one thing we can do in private industry much faster than government-derived funding can get a, can think about those problems. So I tasked the team. Here at Case, we have a, a group of what we call technical fellows. They're the smartest of the smarts. They run circles around me every day. And I chat them in their free time to basically think about what's next, to go to conferences, to read to technical journals, not just in our field, but in adjacent fields that are out there, to really see what their peers are thinking about in terms of next generation technology. And then how do we implement that technology into the workforce that we have today, whether it be quantum computing, artificial intelligence, in a company the size of Case, I'm probably not going to invent the next round of artificial intelligence that's going to change the game, but I can be cognizant of it. I could understand how its implications can be used for the DOD market. And then I could work around the edges to take the core of that technology and really implement it for spaces that can make a difference for our warfighters. So it's something we think about every day. The minute you stop thinking about it, you know, you'll lose the bubble, you'll lose that technolo technological edge. And so 
it's something that we really need to put our shoulder behind. And I'm excited. And I'll say my one advertisement for you, Vago, is all those smart people out there that are interested in the DOD technology and work and how to take those commercial technologies and implement it into our space. Come work for us. You are uh, among the absolutely fascinating people uh, at the company. Uh, so obviously, you guys have uh, a pension for being able to attract that kind of workforce. But again, uh, we're happy to play that role uh, to bolster your ranks, uh, Dave. Dave, we've got about a minute left, and I wanted to ask you this question about sort of the broader national microelectronics investment we're making. The Chips, Chips Act has been integral uh, to stepping up that capability. But, uh, you know, uh, David Schild of the Printed Circuit Board Association points out, Look, that's 30% of the problem. The other 70% of the problem, we're, we're actually not investing as much money in. Uh, and hopefully David's going to join us shortly for that conversation. Talk to us a little bit about the rest of the investment we need to be making across this vast and critically important ecosystem. Yeah, it's a David's exactly right. I, the way I would describe it is the foundry problem was a huge problem that took decades to get us to where we are. And so the investment couldn't come fast enough to really double down on our need to get domestic foundries, to get these trusted capabilities on our shores. That's only a piece of the puzzle. Once we have those foundries on shores, we need to actually build those chips. We need to build them into printed wire boards. We need to take those PWBs and actually put them through um, CCA machines, circuit card machines that actually build capabilities. And when we look across the amount of domestic sources for those, they tend to be niche. So one of the things we're doing at Case is we're investing in our peers to really build their capacity in those capabilities so that we have domestic and trusted sources, not only from the microchip elements like the foundries, all the way through the actual integration of circuit cards that we use every day. And so it's an investment that needs to occur. It's one that industry right now is leading, but it's not going to be enough. We're going to have to figure out how to get this next generation capability ahead of us. Let me just ask you one uh, uh, brief question that's an integrated one. Um, I, I mentioned in the nations that are good at electronic warfare, I neglected to mention, obviously, our Israeli friends uh, are, are good at the uh, capability, as are the Swedes. Uh, and Swedish friends of mine for some time have been talking about the nexus that we're coming to, the sort of the confluence of better sensing, better electronic warfare, uh, better detection, and, and better and more powerful processing. Um, they're position has been stealth is actually perishable if you can get all of these other elements right. Are we at an inflection point for how we can detect and, and how everything in the electronic spectrum actually changes potentially to our advantage, but also potentially disadvantage it, 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 that may disadvantage us? Yeah, Vago, it's one of those kind of continuing questions that we should always ask ourselves. But one of the things as a technologist that I always lean on is the physics tends not to change. And so when I think through these kind of existential problems of what will stealth be in the future, what will electronic warfare look like in the future, how can these enablements happen, we have to boil down to the kind of the raw physics that's there and then understand the implementation of some of these theoretical ideas into the real environment and how that changes things. So 
getting my PhD, things that I studied in the laboratory, which were 100% aligned to physics, were completely useless in real life because of all the other aspects that are out there today. So I can tell you, we think about those problems every day. We worry about those problems. But being deep in the technology that we develop and utilize every day, there are real world applications that are likely to not change as long as we continue to stay ahead of the both the commercial advancements and what's happening out there in the kind of niche technology divestments that happens to be our DOD type uh, investment portfolio. So am I worried about it? Yes. Am I so worried about it that I think we're going to see a fundamental shift in my lifetime? I would say no. I think we're going to continue to obey the laws of physics. We're going to continue to be mindful of those advances. And we're always going to find the ability to utilize those advances in a way that benefits the warfighter today. So whether it's where Sweden is, what we're seeing in Israel or in the Ukraine today, they all live in a bad neighborhood. And so they're very worried about what their neighbors are doing, as they should be. I think what they need to be mindful of is the U.S. and their industry partners are constantly monitoring those activities as well. And we're trying to stay one step ahead of them. But I don't see it as a fundamental disconnect between, I'll say, the systems we'll have five or 10 years or even 15 years from now from what we're able to develop today, mostly due to the physics of the problem and the other real world applications that are out there that change that laboratory environment into something very different than what's implemented on the warfighting field. And before we go, uh, Dave, is the fact that Case is a privately held company an advantage in this environment? Yeah, Vago, having worked for um, large publicly traded companies and now working for a private company, one of the advantages is our agility. So our ability to take those technology investments that we were talking about earlier on the podcast and apply it to the problems that we're seeing across the space that we operate, it happens in hours in some cases, where as we talk to our customers and then in the end, our government and customers they tend to think of budget cycles in years or FIDEPs. And so I've definitely had conversations with our customers where I say, I have a technology and I can implement it tomorrow. And in the next two months, we can have a capability out in the field. The response is great. We'll put some funding aside in 2026 to get that happening. And so one of the advantages is our agility we just are trying to work with our government customers to bring that agility to bear much faster. Dave, thanks so very much for joining us. Terrific conversation. As I said, would love to welcome you back on the program uh, on a regular basis to, to, to talk about the, these and other issues. Thanks so very much uh, and the best of luck to you. Thanks, Fago. I really enjoyed it. And thanks very much to our audience. We appreciate it. And we'll see you again tomorrow for the Air Power Podcast. Thanks again. Have a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow.